This 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 Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This is Matt Burford again. It is our pleasure to be in the basement <laughs> of my home doing our podcast. Uh, we we love doing uh, this for the state of Alabama. We love our people. We love our church. And it is an honor and a pleasure again to be here with my friends, my colleague, my brother in Christ, Shannon Poe. And we have a fantastic person today to talk to and to pick his brain. Shannon, can you tell us who we have? It is Carl R. Truman, uh, who is part of the uh, the Alliance of Even- Confessing Evangelicals, right? And That's correct. Okay, great. I messed it up with, uh, with, with Amy when we were interviewing her. And <laughs> Carl also does a podcast with Amy Bird, who we interviewed earlier in the week, and uh, a gentleman named Todd Pruitt, is that right? And, That's correct. Yeah, and so it's called Mortification of Spin, and they talk about a lot of the the same kind of uh, issues that, that we talk about, um, and the uh, the you know, I guess the the main point of what you get now. Amy said you guys were trying to kind of go along the same line as the white horse or no white in is it white, white horse? horse in yeah white horse in, a, which you actually write yeah. for them a little bit too right i do okay. i do well you know uh that's that's where we got in that that's so so i've been listening to your podcast the mortification of spin uh real fun stuff there uh i like a lot of the topics that you guys are tackling it doesn't seem like it's the kind of thing that people are talking about on normal christian talk radio so it's a real breath of fresh air to hear you guys talk about some of that stuff but what i wanted to talk to you about today well before i do that why don't you introduce yourself um where are you from what your specialty is um i want to get you talking as fast as possible so sure my name's carl truman i teach in the biblical and religious studies department at grove city college just north of pittsburgh in western pennsylvania uh, I trained as a Reformation, an early modern historian. More recently, I've been working on uh, areas of uh, philosophy, selfhood, identity in the 19th and, and 20th century. Well, that's a that's that's more than I've done. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, so then, uh, so then you you are part of. The uh, what what is the what is the denomination that you're part of? Not it's not the it's I, not the same one as the one around here, which is uh, Briarwood is part of the PCA. But you you guys aren't part oh, of yeah. the PCA, right? You guys are. I I'm part of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is uh, stronger in the north than it is in the south. Okay, uh, is Todd it, Pruitt, with whom I do the podcast, he's uh, he's a PCA pastor. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, 
Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, since since you mentioned some of these guys in this article from, oh, wait, one more thing. I'm sorry. Do you have any books that are coming out that you would like to talk about? That's fair, right? Uh, I've got a book coming out at the end of next year, uh, provisionally entitled Christianity and Its Discontents, which is looking at the, trying to set the sexual revolution within the context of broader cultural changes over the last 300 years. Oh, wow. Well, that, that sounds very interesting. We'll keep that on our radar. Um, hopefully, this is a, an ongoing conversation that we can have with you guys every once in a while. Uh, but what what was on my radar is uh, the uh, the nature of uh, some of, some of these, specifically this guy named Joshua Harris, who maybe people aren't all that familiar with him. I never read his book. His book would have been coming out. Uh, I kissed dating goodbye about the time that I was in college and apparently he was uh, part of this young restless and reform movement some of these guys like Mark Driscoll uh, and some of these other people I mean I, I, I associate um, rightly or wrongly I associate John Piper with that group even though you know I, I don't know much about Piper I, I know that he's a relatively solid preacher um but uh your your first things article takes the this young restless and reformed kind of movement to task now now to be honest i think matt matt's perspective on this might be a little bit different but whenever i was coming into my own uh as far as the kingdom of god goes as a christian i think i got wrapped really wrapped up with the with the apologetic world at this point in time so there was a lot of these guys that that i never got interested in um like i i knew who mark driscoll was but he was never somebody that like i went and intentionally downloaded his podcast or anything like that so um so but but these guys have had a very strong influence on uh modern christianity and i think that a lot of these guys I guess the ones that have stayed out of the fray would be some of the people that are part of the Gospel Coalition. Is that is that a true statement? Yes, I think the, the Young Restless and Reformed, the, the, the term comes from a title by, from a book by a person called Colin Hansen, who in about 2008, 2007-2008, wrote this book, where he was describing uh, an interesting, and in many ways, very encouraging movement among young pastors and uh, young people in church who are starting to get interested in some solid uh, Christian doctrine, historical Christian doctrine. So uh, the movement itself was, uh, you know, it, it, it's certainly not uh, an entirely negative thing. My, my approach to the Young, Restless, and Reform would be very much a a balance sheet of positives and negatives. And on the positive side, certainly in its early years, it represented a real uh, thirst, a real move towards grabbing hold of some solid historic Christian uh, doctrine. It's in somewhat in reaction to the, the emergent church, which was then uh, sort of its peak, which represented a much less doctrinal form of Christianity. So the Young, Restless, and Reformed 
really started in you know, about a decade ago, just over a decade ago. And you're quite right, I think, to identify John Piper. Uh, John Piper was not particularly young at the time, but he was certainly an inspiration for a lot of these younger guys, both with his uh, powerful expository preaching and with his passionate interest in, in classical Christian doctrine. Yeah. So we. So um, let me see. So would would Piper be somebody who who you would you would I guess he's relatively uncontroversial as far as some of these other guys that I have on this list. I mean, you mentioned I had to look these guys up uh, except for Mark Driscoll. I knew who Mark Driscoll was because yeah. he had that big fiasco. I think like his. I'm not. Sh- I don't remember if it if there were like any kind of sexual misconduct things going on. It's just he was seemed kind of oppressive to his congregation and had like this kind of no holds bars Trump like Twitter account where he would just say all kind of off the wall stuff. Um, and then these other two guys, James McDonald, Tulian, uh, I don't, I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, Ch- yeah, there you go. And the CJ CJ Mahoney. Mahoney. Mahoney, yeah. I mean, I looked these guys up and I mean, it's pretty rough some of the stuff that these guys have gotten into. Uh, of course, we don't want to pick on these these guys and in a way jo- what Joshua Harris came out and did was a little bit different from what these guys were doing because as far as I can tell, all of those four people that I just mentioned, Mark James Tulian and CJ Mahaney, all of them are still trying to work and do some kind of ministry, even though they've been in some kind of funky, shady stuff. Uh, but Harris is different. Harris just came right out and he was like, I'm out guys. And he did so, uh, in your words, in the same way that he kind of pronounced his faith and, um, and lived his faith, which was very much in the spotlight, making everything about social media, you know, like every every major decision was blasted out on social media whenever he was a Christian, and that follows through now with this, this uh, with, with his, his apostasy and, uh, or his turning away from the faith, whatever. So I wanted to, uh, how do we, how do we deal with this as Christians? What, what is your perspective being in the Reformed tradition, I myself, you know, am not in the Reformed tradition. I grew up as a Baptist, but, you know, then I kind of got saved into a very, uh, I would say, a hyper-charismatic kind of uh, church, but then I've leveled out and moved away from that and moved back into the Baptist church, but in, in a lot of ways, I'm still very much Bapticostal. I would not, ref- I would not term myself as uh, Reformed at all. Uh, now, my good friend Bab, uh, Matt here uh, is part of the Baptist Church, and so there there certainly are some. Uh, he he would he would toe the line on the idea of uh, I think he would toe the line on the idea of once saved always saved. And so this is this is like this is these are kind of hard things because from everything that I can see, whenever I look at Joshua Harris's life, even though uh, actually. Well, his book was a little goofy, uh, but he's done other things since then. He's pastored a mega church and all these things like that. 
what is it that um how do how do you, how do you handle that that kind of a situation where where this guy has just kind of left the faith and 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 how do you how do you think about that how do you process that well i think there are a number of things to be said i mean first of all he's certainly not the first uh professing christian or leading professing christian to have walked away from the faith so uh, although he's He's very high profile because he happens to have been significant, certainly in the, in the broader constituency within which I operate. The, the situation is not a unique one. So the first thing I would say is it doesn't particularly uh, challenge me relative to, to the Christian faith at this point. Uh, this is not uh, an unprecedented situation. Sure. Second thing is, I think the, the question then is, you know, what can we what can we learn from this moving forward? And I think there are certainly certain uh, pathologies or aspects to the culture of probably of American evangelicalism in general, not merely its reformed wing, that I think are problematic. And one of them is is a definite tendency to to give too much power, too much influence, uh, to make too much of uh, young people too soon. I mean, Joshua Harris never really had what one might describe as a normal Christian discipleship. Uh, he was a superstar. Yeah, he wrote this book, I think, in his early 20s, Why, um, uh, Why I Kiss Dating Goodbye, uh, and, or I Kiss Dating Goodbye, sorry, but it's a long time since I looked at it. He wrote that in his early 20s, so he was a he was a megastar right from the get-go. He never had to do Christian discipleship as most of us experience it, which involves regular church attendance, sitting under the Word preached by somebody else, being on the routine rosters at the church, whether it's you know mopping out the bathrooms once in a while or emptying the bins or serving on the tea and coffee rosters. There are there are basic uh, elements of one might describe as humble, ordinary discipleship that a lot of Christians go through that I think is very helpful in, in cultivating a humility and cultivating a, a proper grounding, not only in the, in the truths of the Christian faith, but also in the life of the Christian church. And, and Josh Harris didn't have any of those things. And I think that there's a lesson there, that when you know, the next great young hero comes along, we should be a little skeptical. We should ask ourselves, well, you know, is this person properly mature enough to be holding the position or the authority that we're ascribing to them? So I think that would be one of the, you know, when you say, how do you, how do you handle or, or, or cope with this? I would say, for me, the, the primary point of this is what can we learn from this as we go forward? People sadly apostatize all the time. Professing Christians apostatize all the time. But what can we learn from those apostates that might help us as we move into the future? Yeah, uh, I mean, I've had I've had a close friend that has left the faith, which uh, was was very very emotionally uh, trying for me. And then, you know, what what would be your advice then to some of these some of you know? There's this other guy from Hillsong who I I, I don't really know a lot about. I, he's a worship leader. Um, but, uh, he, I'm sure that, that the way that every, every time somebody walks away from the faith is blasted out from the top of, of all the major, uh, 
media outlets. And so, yeah, what, what can we learn from this? What other than what some, some of the things that you just said, are there, are there lessons here that, um, that how, how do you apply wisdom to, to that, that early process of a, of a young Christian who is, is just a brilliant writer and, uh, or maybe a brilliant writer. I don't know. I mean, do you, do you know what yeah, I'm I mean, saying? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about Marty Sampson. Now I'd never heard of Marty Sampson until, uh, his, his walking away from the faith went viral a few weeks ago, but reading up about him, it's very clear. Again, you have a very young man here who's been tremendously successful in the, the area of Christian ministry in which he was, uh, uh, in which he was used, uh, he's a, a songwriter. What's interesting to me about Samson, perhaps more than than about uh, Harris, is the the sheer naivety of the reasons why he's walking away from the faith. He's sort of saying, "Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions, and nobody ever talks about these things, and nobody ever talks about the Bible and science, etc., etc." Well, it's complete nonsense. People talk about those things all the time. There's entire literature uh, dealing with these things. So what, what's interesting about Samson is here's a man who was clearly placed in a position of, I would say, of teaching influence within the church. I mean, people learn theology from song. Uh, somebody who's writing hymns or somebody who's leading worship is fulfilling a kind of teaching function mm-hmm. within the church. Uh, here we have a guy who's clearly, not to put too fine a point on it, utterly ignorant of Christian theology and Christian history, hmm. being placed in a position where he has huge teaching influence. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to say, that's kind of criminally culpable hmm. on the part of the people who put him there, both relative to his own soul, and that it doesn't help this guy to be made out to be more important or more significant from a Christian perspective than he is. Secondly, it's it, 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 it places the flock, it places congregations in a vulnerable situation relative to somebody who's simply not competent to teach them. So the, the Samson thing is, is even more egregious in many ways than Josh Harris. Now, there's, 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 I think there's a big question mark coming over how much theology Josh Harris has. But certainly for Samson to be saying these things about nobody ever talks about problems in the Bible, nobody ever talks about Christianity and science, that simply demonstrates how little he's actually read of the of the relevant Christian literature and how woefully unqualified he was to hold the position that he was given. Yeah, it speaks a lot about the subculture that he was in uh, at, at the the ministry that he was that he was doing. I mean, for for those things to have not been on anybody's radar. Hey, let me come in and ask a question. You you, you made a comment about. Some things are maybe be would be unique to the evangelical world in America. Um, is 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 this kind of thing that's going on? Do you think is unique here? Um, I, 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 did I say it was unique? I thought he said it wasn't unique. Oh, but, uh, uh, yeah. He, he said uh, that, that people walking away from the faith is not yeah, something. Not that, not is, that part. That, not the, I guess what I, 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 I think. I guess what I want to dig deeper is 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 us lifting up. Maybe the Western world. Maybe it happens in America. The the the, the songwriter was from Australia, though, right? He was New Zealand. Yeah, that's I think. correct. Uh, Australia or New Zealand? Sure. Yeah. So what's 
why are we why are we as a church maybe maybe america does it more than others i don't know why are we lifting these young people up is this are we reacting to culture or I think that's a you know that's a very good question, and, and, and there isn't a single simple answer to that. I, I certainly think that American culture is different, even from European culture, in the way that it tends to emphasise the powerful and influential individual. You see that in sports. If you if you're in Britain, by and large, you follow a sports team, whereas in America, often the sports teams can be built around a particularly big personality. I think of uh, Tom Brady and the New England Patriots for example. Everybody, you, you think of the Patriots, you think of Brady. Uh, if I think of Chelsea Football Club in the United Kingdom, I don't necessarily think of a single big player. So there is that element in American culture, but there's also, I think, a general preoccupation in, in, in America and Europe, in the West in general, with celebrity. And I think the, the, the Christian world mimics that by creating its own subset of, of Christian celebrities in whom it, it invests a huge amount of, of authority. Uh, I also think that um, there's a culture of youth, mm-hmm. and that's, that, that marks out certainly the Western world. It may be becoming a, a pandemic across the face of the earth, that, that we tend to prioritize youth. I mean, everybody wants to look younger, for example. Nobody goes to have plastic surgery to make them look older. Uh, there is this thought that, that youth is beautiful, it's wise, it's unspoiled, it has an enthusiasm and an authenticity that that age takes away. We, we get worse, if you like, from this perspective as we age, and that tends to mean that we, we puff young guys and young girls in these influential positions. Uh, it's odd because if I'm going in for brain surgery or something like that, I don't want some young guy doing my brain surgery. I want a guy who's been doing it for 20, 30 years, can do it with his eyes closed. So there are areas of this world where we, we definitely have to acknowledge that that age and education and experience uh, count for something. But oddly in the church... We don't seem to do that. And that's strange because preaching the gospel, uh, ruling the church as an elder, having the care of souls, that's an extremely responsible position to hold. Uh, and it's not one that should be undertaken lightly. Mm. And uh, and yet so often today, and you look at the young restless and reformed, again, go to Josh Harris or to uh, Mark Driscoll uh, or this, you know, the Hillsong guys, another example tend to be young, uh, very uh, very amenable sort of guys, or in Driscoll's case, he wasn't amenable, but he had that kind of young man swagger about him that's very attractive to a certain clientele. That's very counter the Bible's position. I mean, if you look at what Paul says in the, the pastoral epistles, when Paul talks about elders and deacons, it's very clear that he's talking about people there who are of some age who prove themselves. You know, they manage their households well. They're well respected in their communities. Mm. Uh, and the tendency in the New Testament, I think, as in the old, is clearly to look for age and experience and proven track records as that which qualifies you or which is necessary.
necessary in order to be qualified for a leadership position, such that Paul has to say, and I often say to students, this is the most, in today's world, the most incomprehensible verse in the Bible is when Paul says to Timothy, let no man despise you because of your youth. Nobody despises anybody because of their youth these days. We despise old people. Uh, that's, that's part of our culture. So I think in answer to your question, there are a variety of things in our culture that have sort of come together to create this very, I think, very unbiblical vision of what competent church leadership looks like. It looks young, it looks brash, it looks slick. Uh, that's not the Bible's picture. And if you, if you abandon the Bible's picture and move for the cultural picture, you're going to end up with disasters. I mean, I feel as sorry for Josh Harris as I feel for the people he pastored, because mm. I think he was not served well by the men who made him a big deal when he should have been just a young, humble member of a church. But wow. he's so happy now, though. Um, <laughs> so he says. Yeah, so he I know. says, and isn't that tragic? <laughs> it is tragic. So this is that 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 is kind of like the pop culture aspect of it, though. But personally, have you had friends who have walked away, and or or had? I mean, this we we deal with these kind of hard questions all the time as as yeah. people who are interested in apologetic kind of subjects and. You know, we we love theology, we love philosophy, yeah. we love we love to ask hard questions. Um, so I, you know, there's it's been relatively the the my my one of my close friends who have who did walk away from the faith did so after like you know seeing some things that were associated with apologetics and something about the personalities or whatever turned him off and. You know, yeah. he 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 left, and I'm I'm trying to carry on this conversation. Hopefully, trying to woo him back. What is what is yeah. your approach to this? Well, again, I, you know, I think the first thing to remember in all this is that the Christian faith is not purely an intellectual matter. Sure. It's a moral thing as well. And Romans one makes it very clear, and First Corinthians one, uh, Paul makes it very clear again and again in his letters that uh, that belief or your attitude to the cross that's that's also an indicator of the morality of your heart, where your heart is. Are you, are you a rebel against God, or are you uh, seeking Him in, re in, in faith and repentance? So I, I've had friends walk away from the faith uh, over the years. Some have come back, which has mm. always been a joy to me. But yeah. I would say in the cases of, of the men that I, and, and women that I've seen really fall away long-term, maybe permanently, it's never been simply an intellectual crisis. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes it's it's the despicable behavior of other Christians that, that triggers some kind of process in their own thinking. More often than not, my observation has been that it's some personal moral issue. That's mm -hmm. not to say, that's not to relativize their intellectual concerns. It's not to trivialize the serious questions they might be asking of the faith and of the church. But often... Uh, it seems to me that doubt and apostasy goes hand in hand with, sad to say it, but typically in my experience it's been with a desire to expand uh, or abandon uh, notions of what is and is not sexually moral. Yeah, yeah, you certainly have that. that, that yeah, it can uh, be connected to an affair or a same-sex attraction or something like this. Mm -hmm. uh, and. and my experience is limited, so I, you, you can't generalize from the 
the dozen people that Truman's known to how it happens for everybody. But in my sure. personal experience, every single case I think of did involve some kind of moral issue, not necessarily a sexual one, but the sexual uh, moral one was the primary, uh, the primary exemplar in those. Okay. Yeah, sure, sure. And that seems to be the trap here in the Deep South, where we have we have more churches than we do Walmart, right? Um, right so if right. somebody has a moral issue, the church almost, well, at least the Baptist church, feels hamstrung because where's moral discipline? Where's the discipline of the church when they yeah. can just leave it and yeah. go somewhere else? Um, because yeah, that, that, that's a real problem. Yeah, because that's something that we've always dealt with as a nonprofit. At least I have dealt with is. Um, I went into this thinking that we weren't intellectual enough, so I had to feed the mind. And what I came to find out is, no, really what we what we as a church in the Baptist world in Alabama deal with is is a moral. It's really a moral issue first. That's the reason right. I did so much work in humility, because I realized, you know, that the beginning process of becoming Christ-like is not necessarily importing a bunch of knowledge. It's fear of the Lord. It's it's yeah. acting as if you are not God and he is God. Uh, that's the starting point. Well, that what I'm getting from you, I feel like I'm a, you're a kindred spirit for me, which is the process of becoming Christ-like is more than just your you know VBS learning, which that's fine, learning the principles of the faith, but it's being in community with worship, service, you know what we call mercy ministries, plus the doctrine, all come together in the church to help form you spiritually to become Christ-like. Correct. Yeah, I think so. And that's where I think a guy like Josh Harris was probably you know, shortchanged by becoming too big too quickly. Yeah, it's like uh, tortoise in the hare, right? I mean, it's uh, our yeah. the the spiritual formation is a long is like playing the long game. It's it's not yeah. it's not a microwave type thing where it can happen in an instant. It is a Oh long... yeah, and that's why I, I think it's vitally important for all Christians, it doesn't matter where you sort of fit in the in the hierarchy if you like be involved in some of the very humble tasks in your local church. Uh, That's awesome. Be, be on the trash roster, be on the nursery roster, be involved in serving other people in a humble capacity. It's interesting, uh, isn't it, that Stephen was the first martyr when he wasn't an elder? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's a deacon. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, and the Lord isn't sitting at God's right hand, he's standing. Yeah. <laughs> think to acknowledge Stephen as he's martyred at that point. Yeah, they're, 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 that's a very good point. Mm. We can make a sermon out of that, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to go back to that. You know, we we have a one of our speakers that has come back m- multiple times for us is a guy named Gary Habermas uh, over at Liberty and done a lot of work with the resurrection. But oh, I know of his work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he he has oddly enough he's done a lot of of work on uh, on doubt as as well yeah. as near death experiences, but um. That's another, that's an aside, but the, the idea, you know, he, he, he talks a lot about volitional doubt being the main driver for, for people all the time. And, uh, that, that idea that, that there, there usually almost always is something. So when we try to apply this rubric of just answering these kind of flat questions, right? So like this, the guy from Hillsong's, um, you know what was his name marty sampson or whatever um yeah you know it, it, we we could probably answer a lot of those questions for him but there is most likely you know if the, there is not something else tugging at his heart that is 
largely a you know a moral tug then you know there could be there could be a deeper hurt or something like that 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 needs to you know needs to be found and kind of fleshed out too um Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with uh, with Marty Sampson is the kind of questions that he was asking on his Twitter account or whatever. Had he gone to his local library, he could have found books that would have answered those for him. I think what you see there really is somebody giving an excuse for wanting to wanting to move away. Yeah, there's also this idea, like, and it's it's very frustrating to see so many people just air air every every thought on Twitter. And, uh, every, every little or Instagram or whatever it is, you know, so every, every movement that this guy was making, I think he actually went back and deleted his original post, the guy from Hillsong, whenever he said that he was just like right on the edge, but then he has come out recently and said, you know, I fell off the edge. Um, so one question for me, um, and you know, I I know we're going to wrap it up because you got things to do, but, um, so is this... So in a church like in, because my perspective is mostly Southern Baptist and Baptist, and you, you know how we we are functioned and how we're put together. Individual churches have their own autonomy. Uh, we we you know there's this priesthood of believer that historically doctrinally goes back two three four hundred years, um, but it it seems to have functioned and work in a specific time in human history and Western history. But now what you're seeing in our world is this huge flock towards Catholicism and Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. It's happening in a big way, even down south, uh, especially from a younger generation. Is that because they're looking for something that's um, rooted and grounded and almost like a monolith that they can rest in that will that has least somewhat from the outside devoted itself to character and spiritual formation? Yeah, again, that's a good question, and you're, you're putting your finger on, on an interesting trend. Uh, again, one would have to say, of course, it, any individual could move to Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy for their own particular reason. Sure. It's not that everybody would move for the same reason. But I think what Orthodoxy and Catholicism, if I can put it this way, what they do well, and there's plenty of things they don't do well, but I would say what, what is probably attractive about them is they have a historical rootedness. They have a, a key identity, uh, and they have uh, often a, a, an ident- a, a, an emphasis on kind of community. Uh, now that's not always the case, and it, it doesn't work out uh, everywhere. But I think there's a sense. I, I remember being in Rome a few years ago and walking in St. Peter's Square and feeling for the first time that that I got the attraction of Catholicism. Not that I was tempted to convert, but mm. there was a feeling of walking into St. Peter's Square, wow, this is huge, this is historic, I'd love to belong to this. Yeah, This is a place that exudes self-confidence, if I could put it that way. <laughs> and I would love to be swallowed up in something so much bigger than myself. Mm. And I think evangelicalism too often doesn't offer anything like that. It, it offers little more than than American culture with the word Jesus sprinkled into it a little bit. Uh, You know, come as casual as you are. It's just like Starbucks, only we sing a few songs and some guy will, you know, read the Bible to us a bit. That the sense of of historical weight, the sense of something serious and adult is going on here, is often missing from our Protestant assemblies. And I 
think that's uh, that's a real tragedy because we do have a historic tradition. Baptists, Presbyterians, we have our historic tradition. We have uh, a history of, of worshipping as adults, if I could put it that way. But too often we don't capitalize on that. Too often we don't draw on that. Mm. Ooh. That should be the tech, the title of your next work. So worshipping as adults. Hmm. I'm going to start using that now. Okay, so uh, well, I guess I guess we're gonna we're on the tail end of this thing. Um, is uh, the the confessing evangelical the the alliance of even confessing evangelicals? Can yeah? Can you give me a little snapshot of what this is on our way out? Because this is an interesting uh, movement, or I don't even yeah. know if it's a movement. What is what is it? There probably aren't enough of us to be for it to be a movement. Uh, it's essentially an organization of of interested Christians and pastors uh, trying to encourage local churches and denominations to take their historic confessional tradition seriously. Mm. So we have Baptists involved who are very passionate about the Baptist 1689 Confession, the Reformed Baptist Confession. As a Presbyterian, I'm passionate about getting people to, to consider the relevance of, of the Westminster Confession and its theology for the present day and for shaping our worship. So it's it's a small group. We lost all of our superstars. Uh, when the Young Restless and Reform kicked off, all of our superstars went to the Gospel Coalition. Mm. So I, uh, there's just me and a handful left in the Alliance. But we're, yeah. we're small, and uh, and we have a small constituency, but we, we hope to be able to promote what we would call historic confessional Protestantism uh, among our constituent churches. Is it is it uh, is it more of a liturgical kind of push that you guys would like to see happening within uh, within the services, or I mean, what, what's the goal? With... No, not not well, not not liturgical in the sense of highly elaborate formal written liturgies. Though some of our we have Anglicans who are involved, and they would certainly use the Book of Common Prayer or an equivalent. Uh, I would say liturgical in this sense, that we would certainly encourage people to to think about their worship service as having an order and making sense. Mm. It's not just getting together, singing some songs, and then hearing a sermon. Uh, I, I always think a, a service should itself, the dynamics of the service should in some ways reflect the dynamics of the gospel. So... The church where I go to, we have the minister calls us to worship. Uh, at some point in the service, we'll have a, a reading of the law, and then we'll have a prayer. He'll lead us in prayer, confessing our sin. Um, and then we'll have a, a, a gospel promise given after that, mm. a sort of prelude to coming to the, the preaching of the Word. So we certainly encourage people to think about how they construct their worship services relative to the drama of the gospel that's laid out in the Bible. Wow. And there's a website for that too, right? What would that be for people? Uh, well, uh, if, you, if you look up the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, that will take you to the main website, and you can jump from that to the, the sort of sub-sites that there are. And the Alliance has a lot of uh, um, sermons, a lot of conference addresses available for, for download, and also publishes uh, a few books on these kind of topics. 
Well, if people want to know, they go to First Things. Uh, you have a book coming out. They can Google you. I will tell you a little secret. If we could get you to Alabama, just with your accent alone, you'll be a superstar. Hmm. So uh, so maybe maybe we can, uh, at some point in the future, call on you to come down and do some lectures for us, and, and we'll, we'll give you the uh, Deep South superstar treatment. You'll, that sounds you, you do fried green tomatoes in Alabama. Yeah, we do we do everything fried. They're they're tomatoes, uh, uh, fried, but not tomatoes. I don't Okay. <laughs> yeah. Fried green tomatoes are yeah. my favorite. There you so go. If you, if you do good fried green tomatoes, I'll come. Every yeah. great culture fried something. You know that from Scottish people to Japanese. We you know, if you fry you're a good culture. So our <laughs> our mutual friend uh Dr. Bray used to say that we te- we took uh, in the Deep South, which should have been a wine and cheese culture, we took uh, the bread and meat culture of Europe and applied it to a culture that really should have been wine and cheese. That's the reason we're all fat. Uh, of course. Mm. So yeah. That's why we're all fat, but we're happy. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we're a little... And that's Gerald's yeah. French bias coming out as well. <laughs> this is French bias as well, <laughs> but for some reason he loves coming down here, so that tells you something. Thank oh, you, yeah. thank you yeah. so much. Hopefully this won't be the last time we love we love learning about new people in our life that are are really asking people to think deeply, uh, but do it in context with believers. and And we love your work, and we're going to be new friends. and We think you're a superstar, and we love to have you back on. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. Hey, thanks, thanks so a lot. much, Carl.